All right, so this sermon, um, this sermon has been sort of lingering to a certain extent. Uh, this was originally going to be one of the introductory sermons I did uh, for the book of Mark, uh, but there was a lot of introductory sermons for the book of Mark, <laughs> so I needed to get down to business. But I also wanted a theme to develop that I would then go back and explain. Um, you know, what, what was read for us this morning from Hebrews, Jesus came lower than the angels for a time. What does that mean? This world was not subjected to angels. It was not for angels uh, that Christ came to serve, but it was the children of Abraham. So there's a lot of mystery there. Um, most of us, I think, I, a lot of what I'm about to say today, this is one of the few subjects in my own private time I've spent a, a majority of my years as a Christian studying this. And it's because there was, I had so much confusion when I was converted, I, I, so much. I thought when I died, I became an angel, right? I mean, most of us think that. You die, you become angels. But that's, that's not what happens. And um, there's sort of this, there's, there's oddities. Jesus comes, and what, what starts to happen? There is more angelic activity in Luke 1 and 2 than I think any other two chapters in the entire Bible, chapters. And why, right? I mean, um, there's things like the star comes from deep heaven down to earth. Uh, and this isn't something I promised my wife. I promised her I was not going to get into this. There is some connection between angels and stars. I'm not going to get into that. That's Mike starts to get way out on the skinny branches. <laughs> That's a thing. But uh, anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. But in, the, in, the, in Christ's nativity, there's a star that comes from deep heaven and comes down to earth. Stars don't usually do that. There's a host of angels singing. Now, in the host of it, they're not impersonal forces. They're not like a jukebox that, that God puts a quarter in and the angels play that song that he wants to hear at that particular event in history. The angels are, are probably, besides God himself, the most excited people about what's coming because they understand something that we oftentimes don't get at all. And, and that is that the age of angels is coming to an end. And the age of men is beginning. And, and that is why they're so excited. Because for thousands of years, they've had to do things that is not their responsibility to do. They, they've been forced to fight in a way and guard things and be things that they were not meant to be. And, 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 they're, and they've lost, essentially. This is what we're going to see. And they're, they are so happy <laughs> That, that Yahweh himself has come from deep heaven to fix the broken world. And, and that's, so we're going to step out of this exegetical stream of Mark, and, and I'm going to explain <laughs> angels and demons so that I can explain one verse in Mark. <laughs> and and that's, that's what this is all about. Um, and so forgive me if I, I'm going to try really hard uh, this is one of those areas I had to pray a lot about, so I stayed on track. Uh, it's also like Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Uh, he, he studied Mordor so much so that he became seduced by Mordor. So all week I was, I was rereading a lot of things about demons, and I thought, you know, periodically I would just stop and pray. Because, <laughs> you know, you can, you can learn too much about the enemy. But let's pray. Let's pray, and then, and then we will get into this, these deep, deep waters. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he came into this world, that you did not stay away, that you did not leave us in our fallen state. 
um, but that you sent your, your son, the strong man, who was strong enough to bend the cosmos back into shape. We thank you for him, and we pray, Lord God, that as we open your word today and look into the deeper magic and mystery of your creation and your plan, that you would protect our hearts and our minds and our imaginations, and that you would um, heal us of our modernism and teach us to think biblically about these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'll start quite simply. What, what were angels made for? What, what is their purpose? Uh, they are made in the image of God. They're not made in the image of God like we are. There's not male and female angels. They don't procreate. Uh, we're going to get into this. They don't bleed. You can prick an angel, but it doesn't bleed. Right? They, they can go into heaven. They can go on earth. They're, they're like God in that sense. right? They're made in the image of God, but they're not fully made in the image of God like we are. We are a fuller image of God. right? I mean, I could stop there. That's a mystery enough. But this is just, we're getting started here. They are created, as it says in Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They are servants. God needed house servants. <laughs> and, and, and so he created angels. Angels are the ones who obey his voice. Go down there and tell that lady she's going to have a baby. Go down there and tell that guy not to divorce her. Uh, you guys go and slay 185,000 Syrians. Right? This is what God does. He sends the angels out to do his bidding. And they, and they love to obey. They fly to obey. Psalm 91.11 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. He will command his angels to guard you in all your ways. So there is some validity to guardian angels. I don't think we're all assigned one particular one, like Joe the angel is not following me around. Right? We cannot see angels. They are here, though. Their job is to minister to us. And so if you've ever somehow survived a car accident when you weren't wearing your seatbelt, uh, we like to say in the Claus house, we, don't, we have like a legion of angels because the fact that Polly has not had to go to the ER a great deal more. I'm looking at you, son. He's got a whole host of angels. Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. So there in the, in the fire where they were thrown is an angel guarding them. Angels have specific jobs, even. They're not, just, right, they're not all just standing around in heaven, taking a number, waiting to do something for God. He creates them to have jobs. And they've been doing it since the beginning of creation. Psalm 78, 49 says, He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. So there are angels whose job is to simply go forth and destroy God's enemies. Revelation 4.8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so you have hosts of angels waiting to destroy God's en enemies. You have hosts of angels who simply stand before him and tell him how glorious he is. And they delight to do it. That's what they were made to do. And they do it under the Lord with all their heart, all their strength, all their mind, all their soul. It's a choir of angels. Now, there's uh, another job that angels have, and I find this one quite fascinating. 1 Samuel 4.4. 4. 
So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. You know what the Ark is? It's a big golden box uh, like the one in Indiana Jones. Just kidding. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned upon cherubim. So on top of the Ark are, are these two angels who have their wings folded out. And on top of that, they call it the mercy seat. So it's the throne of God. So in the, in the tabernacle is this Ark, and, and he is enthroned upon the angels. Enthroned on the cherubim. This is also found in 2 Samuel 6.2, Isaiah 37.16. And then there's a, a most curious, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4 through 28, Ezekiel actually sees the throne of God. And when he's looking at it, he's a little confused because it, for a moment it looks like a, this glorious golden chariot with these big wheels, this platform. And then he blinks and then it's angels. Somehow are the wheels and angels are the platform. And it's very mysterious. But this is why right, the Messiah, it says, Satan even says this to Jesus, right? You'll be carried about by angels it's because he's the son of God. The son of God, literally, he stands on his chariot, God does, and goes forth in his might, riding upon angels. Now, imagine seeing that for a moment. Here comes God riding on angels. So that, that's their job. Their job is to simply carry God around. When God needs an Uber, he calls the seraphim, and the seraphim come and take him wherever he wants to go. <laughs> so here, these are just some of the jobs. Gabriel, obviously, is a messenger. Twice in Daniel, he's a messenger. Twice in Luke, he's a messenger. We also find him uh, kicking some demon butt from time to time in the Old Testament. So he's also a warrior. And so if all the angels have jobs, all the angels have jobs. Even the fallen ones had jobs. So what was Satan's job? What was Satan made to do? Well, if you look at the key passages about Satan, you actually discover what his job was. So if we go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, I'm not going to wait for everyone. There's a ton of verses. I don't know how many I've done so far. There's 60 total. So just don't worry. I'll read it out loud. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So it's, it's a question. He's testing her. What does the law of God say? Now, the theory is that he was a, the original catechizer. God has children, and he wants his children to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, like he wants all of his children to grow up. And so he has the most glorious, most beautiful angel, who's so cunning and wise, comes and questions them about the law of God. Hmm. He's testing their faith. That's his job. Now, that's a good job, right? Like, I test my kids' faith all the time. I do it for the glory of the Lord. We're going to see what Satan does with it here in a minute. But that's why... Right? Testing a child's faith. You ask them questions. What is the chief end of man? And they give you an answer. What is the third commandment? They give you an answer. So Satan was created to be the catechizer of mankind. That sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Well, let's go to Job, chapter 1. And this is what it says in chapter 1 of Job. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came Among them, the Lord said to Satan, (laughs) wait, wait, what, what? 
They're just like hanging out in heaven. I thought this was God's enemy. I thought this was the guy that hated God. I thought this was the guy who despised God and God hated him. And there are these two warring parties. But it seems more like Satan's God's lapdog. He's like, hey, kids, we're going to have a staff meeting in the morning, and we're going to discuss the plans for the day. And there's Satan amongst the sons of God, just like all the other angels. And then I like it. It goes on. What does God say? He says, hey, have you ever considered my son Job? Satan, listen, dude, I don't touch him. You know why I don't touch him? Because you put a hedge of protection around him. But if you put your finger on him, Satan says to God, he will curse you to your face. So God says, okay, go for it. Right now, wait, if you touch him, Satan says. So God touches Job and he uses Satan to do it. Satan's the catechizer. You, you want to see the faith of Job? You go forth and you, you shake him like a tree and you see what falls out of him. And then what do we, we go on and we find out what happens to poor Job, right? There's a, a, a pagan tribe comes and kills all his kids or, or kills all of his flocks. Some wind comes around. So here's God through Satan, through wind, through tribes, through disease, testing Job's faith, shaking him violently. In Luke 22, this is what, what Christ says to Peter. He says, yeah, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake you violently. But I've prayed for you. And so after you, after you return, right, so he knows what's going to happen. This is what Satan does. He shakes the, tr- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what falls out of it, the fruit. Blessed are, are, are the children of God. They're like trees planted by streams of living water. He shakes Adam. And what happens to Adam? Well, he falls easily. He shakes Job. And what happens to Job? He stands firm. He shakes Jesus. And what happens to Jesus? He shakes Peter. And what happens to Peter? Well, Peter, you know, he kind of falls down, but then he comes right back up again because Jesus is interceding for him. Satan shakes the people of God. That is what he was made to do. He tests our faith. Satan's job is, is that of a catechizer. He asks us, do we know? Do you know? What does the word of God say? What does it mean? How do you apply it? Did he say this? Did he not say that? Now, if, if you have that conception, suddenly some things about Satan start to fall together. One conception of the fall that I think makes the most sense of all the verses is that God makes all the angels, and, and Satan is actually the most glorious and most beautiful of all of them. Okay? And if you're the most glorious and most beautiful of a bunch of beings who are glorious and beautiful, what do you think is going to happen to you? Well, you're probably going to be the king of those angels. But then what does God do? God takes a bunch of mud, forms it into a man, breathes life into it, and makes him the king. Now, could you imagine being a glorious and beautiful being and seeing the God, uh, God make a mudblood into the king of the earth? Right? I would be a little, you know, perturbed at that. What about my glory? What, oh, you want me just to follow them around and ask them questions and make sure they're listening to you? Yeah, I don't think so. And so what Satan does is he uses his opportunity to question them to not cr- encourage their faith but to create doubt. Now, this is what it says of Satan in Ezekiel 28. Thus says the Lord God. He's talking to Satan. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. You sinned. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Now, here this is not just metaphorical. The fallen angels are thrown out of heaven down onto the ground. Satan is allowed to come back into the council of God, but there's no evidence that any of the other demons are. To crawl now on your, on your belly on the ground. You're no longer able to just go up into heaven when you want and go down to earth like you want and do my bidding in that way. All of you fallen angels, because you loved your splendor so much, tried to take the throne from Adam because what else is the fall? It's a coup d'etat. He comes, he questions them, and he, gets the, he, he knows what's going to happen. If they eat of the fruit, they're going to die. If they die, they're out of the way. And then who's on top again? Well, the most beautiful and the wisest creature that God made. And so the whole thing is a coup d'etat. He wants Adam to die. He wants him out of the way so that he can be king. This is why we find all kinds of crazy... I mean, if you think about what's said about Satan, he's called the God of this world. He's called the king. Jesus has no problem with Satan. He has a kingdom. And, and it's because now he has, he has replaced Adam at the top of, the, of creatures. Because if, the, if Adam, who's supposed to be at the top, worships, worships him, what happens to Adam? He falls like this, and the angels get elevated, and now what you have is the whole cosmos is out of whack. The whole cosmos is bent. It's all out of shape. We got men following angels and angels leading men, and everything is all mixed up. And this is what Satan wanted. How dare you, when I'm standing here in all this glory, make a mudblood the king? Look at that filthy little thing. Look at it, it just belched. You will never see me belch in a million years. Now, Satan hates God for this. Because Satan doesn't love anything more than his own glory. Glory itself. So why would God, the most glorious, even more glorious than Satan, even he might admit that, why would he make these little filthy things kings above angels? So he hates it. He wants to destroy all of this. I don't, I don't want any of this. I don't want it shaped this way. What we want is a, is a kingdom where we drive God and his people out of it so that we can have it all to ourselves. And then what we'll do is we will be in charge. Anyone who comes with me, you're also going to be in charge. And so he lies and he murders and he deceives to keep people in oppression, to keep the voice of God out of this world, to take this world for himself. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. From the very beginning, he had murder in his heart because if he murders Adam, Adam is no longer the king. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Elders, the leaders of God's people, must not be a recent convert where he may become puffed up with the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, right? Satan doesn't love anything more than pride. He loves that sin. He knows all about that sin. He knows how that sin works. So you want to try to avoid pride, and you want to go up against him in your own strength, who do you think is going to win that fight? He loves conceit. He loves pride. 2 Corinthians 11.14. This, this is, think about this for a moment. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
He wants to be the light of the world. Who's the light of the world? Why would Satan, why would he want to be confused with a great and, and hot and beautiful and glorious light coming out of heaven? Now, what's fascinating here, and now this is where we turn to some new, a new direction. Muhammad is on a mountain. And who comes to him to give him revelation? The angel of light. Right? He calls him Gabriel. But in the whole cosmology of Islam, angels are angels of light. There aren't any other kind of angels. Now, in the Bible, they're not all angels of light. But in Islam, they're all angels of light. Hmm. Muhammad says it's Gabriel that came and visited him because, well, who else did Gabriel come and visit? So why would he want to do that? But whatever, okay. So, okay, so then thousands of, or a thousand years later, this very weird guy named Joseph Smith is hanging out all by himself, and who, lo and behold, comes and gives him special revelation, the angel of light. Now, what's fascinating about this is if you, (laughs) I have a Book of Mormon, and occasionally I, I peruse it, mostly to make myself laugh, but it is serious. Uh, part of what this whole sermon is, we, we should take these things more seriously. But the angel of light has now won over Muhammad and Joseph Smith. And, and what's the result? What's the result? Islam and Mormonism seem to be doing fairly well for themselves. Right? These two men are all too ready to have the angel of light as their benefactor. They're like, oh, you're going to come and you're going to give me special power, special revelation? You look like a god because all the angels in the Bible, when they're seen by men, they look like gods, and so you must be a god. And so behind the prophet Muhammad and Allah is what? Satan. Behind Joseph Smith and their whole, as much as they try to look whitewashed like Christians, what's behind all of that? Satan. Fallen angels have always made themselves available as a source of power to entice men to set them up in godlike reverence and awe. In mythology, in history, there really has always been some source of power, some personality behind the stories, behind the idols, behind the gods. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. One of the worst things about modern people is that they don't believe in the supernatural, right? We think Zeus is just some figment of the Greek imagination, right? Oh, okay, um, they want to have some, right, especially communists, say that religion is just created to hold pe- to suppress people and oppress them. And so they just made up this idea about Zeus and built temples in order to hold all the Greeks down. But that's nonsense. That's nonsense, You go into any pagan temple, and there is something behind the throne. There is something behind the statues. There's something behind the teaching. There's some force or power that's local. Why are there so many localized gods? Why is Christianity, right, the first, uh, Judaism before it, why are they the only monotheistic groups? Well, because with the pantheon of small gods, Right? What do you have? Athena is the goddess of Athens because an angel is not God. A demon is not God. A demon has only so much power, only so much prestige, can only cover so much ground. And so what you do is, okay, okay well, let's have 12 of us go into Egypt now. And what you do is you be the god of the Nile and you be the god of the sun and you be the god of 
plants and animals, and you be the god of um, mothers having babies. And what we'll do is we'll just spread out, and we'll just take the whole land. We'll take this whole kingdom. We are too often blinded by our modern scientism to understand that these things are still going on. Right? Let's talk about Marvel movies for a moment. Do any ancient gods show up in Marvel movies? Now, the whole comic book thing is, is, again, I could get very distracted by this. But essentially what you have, right, because man and his mythology can't come up with anything else, is in Marvel you have a bunch of men who want to become gods. Iron Man wants to be a god. Captain America, give him this serum, now he's a god. Hulk, give him the serum, now he's a god. DC Comics, what you have is a bunch of gods who want to become men. Right? Wonder Woman is a goddess who wants to just be a normal gal who goes out on Friday nights and has martinis. Right? This is an ancient lie, and we still believe it. Right? The Mormon who comes to your door, there is, he, they're not somebody who just read the wrong philosophy book in college. There are forces at work in this world, and they are dark, and they are disgusting. Why would God say, you shall have no other gods before me? Why would he say that unless there were other gods? Why would he say that? Why does he, why, right? If there's nothing behind it, why does he care? But he does care a great deal. No, no gods or small g gods exist. Now, here, here's an odd one from more modern times. In 2015, after conducting a CT scan on a statue of Buddha, the interdisciplinary team was shocked to find that within it was a perfectly mummified monk from the 10th century. Well, I thought Buddhists just, you know, like gave away things to the poor and prayed and meditated and stuff. What do you mean inside the Buddha statue is an actual, you know, mummy? What is that all about? Well, actually, this was when I had to stop reading articles about this because it just got creepier and creepier and creepier. Now, the monk had reached enlightenment through an elaborate process of self-mummification. Self-mummification. Which involves starving himself and mummifying, committing suicide over a 1,000-day ritual of drinking poison tea. Yes, he did that to himself. And somewhere in there, he reached enlightenment. So then what they've discovered has happened is that people would come for thousands of miles to pray in the presence of this mummified monk. And after a while, it started to deteriorate, and fewer people were coming, and they weren't making as much money, so they're like, let's dip them in bronze. And then over time, because we're humans, they lost that knowledge. And so, okay, now you come and visit this Buddha, and everyone just thinks it's a statue, especially modern people. But no, it turns out, really, behind it is some creepy dude who killed himself. Now, what would possess him to do such a thing? Pun intended. Mark 9.22 this father cries out to Jesus. He says, now, this demon has often cast my son into the fire and, and in water to destroy him. So now imagine a demon who's like, wait, why, why am I just killing this guy? Why don't I make him an idol? That people come for a thousand years to, to do pilgrimages and pray to him and meditate in his presence. Not only do I get to torment this guy for a, a thousand days, but I actually get to go on tormenting people through him for a thousand years, a thousand year reign of that demon, right there. Now, I thought these, you know, come on, Buddhists, really? You're going to say there's demonic for, yes. What else is this? Now, if you really want a nightmare story, 
go and read about the thousand-day process and the tea that he had to drink, because it is disturbing. If a demon can terrorize one man, and through that one man, thousands of people think about that for a moment. Localized gods are all over scripture if you're looking for them. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods, the Israelites, are gods of hills. <laughs> so that's why they are stronger than we are. But let us go down and fight them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Like, that's, that's the problem. We fought them in the woods, and their gods are gods clearly of woods. Otherwise, they would have never beat us. So let's take them somewhere outside of where their gods live, their localized gods, and we'll whoop them down in the, in the field, in the valley. 1 Kings twenty twenty eight. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a Lord of the, a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Oh, yeah? I'm the God of the hills. I'm the God of the plains. I'm, you want to go out on the seas? Let's go out on the seas. You want to go into deep space? Let's go into deep space. So what happens in the Old Testament when the Lord of all things comes up against a bunch of local deities? Well, you see it in the Exodus. Because at first, what do you have, right? All of the gods, all of the, the miracles that are in the Exodus, the, the, thing, the plagues, are an attack on a specific Egyptian god. Now, and for a few days, the Egyptian um, magicians can actually do the same things Moses can. They can do the same, some of the same magic. Because why? Because the gods they're defending are actual fallen angels who, can, who have, a few, have a few tricks. And we can do a few of those things. But the longer they go, the more of the Egyptian gods look like fools. They look like nothing. He defeats all of them. And see, this is, this is now what we're getting into. Does God defeat all of those no gods of the Egyptians? Yeah, yeah. But then he's still leading around, you know, the Israelites. <laughs> so as much as he can get a victory, he can't sustain it because he can't find a good man. He can't find a good man to hold on to the ground that he takes. So what direction do you think it's going to go overall? If you can't find a good man that can hold the ground that God takes, eventually the demons are going to take it all. So, I better hurry. <laughs> Revelations 19, or I'm sorry, Revelations, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John fell down at the feet of the angel and worshiped him. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And so you know that when an angel is seen, people want to worship it. And the true angels don't want to be worshiped because they're servants of God just like we are. Now imagine a fallen angel. He's like, oh, you're going to worship me? Cool. I'm Artemis, and what we're going to do is build a temple, and then uh, you guys can just keep coming here generation after generation and sacrifice to me. And then you've got hundreds of years, thousands of years of slavery. Of slavery. What this all proves is that in the garden, you had God, and you had men, and you had angels. And the fall, man falls, and it elevates angels. Now you have demons running around, running loose, under the, under the power of Satan, doing all kinds of havoc, and you've got man who can't do anything about it. 
He can't unfall himself. He can't save himself. He can't bleed enough to cover his sins. He can't defeat angels, right? Never is a man fight an angel in the Bible. You know why? Because they can't. They just can't do it. And so the whole cosmos is bent. It's not just individual human beings that are bent. The cosmos itself is bent. It's all out of whack. Now let's go for a moment, just one last point here. Those verses I was reading about Satan are found in Ezekiel. And this is what it says in Ezekiel. Chapter 28. Listen to this for a moment. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now listen, this is the king of Tyre that they're talking to. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, But Tyr wasn't, but I thought it was a man. It's very confusing, right? Unless you understand this, if, right? Where the heart of, of the king goes, so go the people. And so angels, fallen angels, demons, if they can get one person in the higher power structure, they get a lot of people. If you get one high priest, one king, somebody high in the military who worships Satan, who worships evil things, then what you can get is you can direct an entire nation. And so everything is out of whack. Angels themselves now have to pick up the slack of mankind. Good angels, I'm talking about. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, they're put in charge of the garden to protect it. Right? What was Adam told to do? Guard and protect the garden. Failed. Now we have demons running around all over the place. Fine, I'm going to put an angel in charge. Here, you stand here with this sword that turns in every direction and just stand here and guard this place. And then in Exodus, it says if every time... Right? Man gets really puffed up. Israelites were like, look at all this clothes we got. We got like stones on here. We got the sacrifice. And he goes towards the inner sanctum. And what is there on the curtain facing him? Actually, the thing protecting the inner sanctuary is an angel. On, on the act- And so he's like, okay, well, I thought I was somebody there for a moment, being the high priest. But it turns out... I can't even get in back where Adam was, and there's an angel now who guards it. And so every time they go in there, they're reminded of the fact that they lost their job. You have angels running around um, destroying the enemies of God, and then you have this one character, this one character who's very important called the angel of the Lord. Now, who's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Well, let's go to Judges chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Wait, an angel promised to give the land to their fathers? I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, let me ask you this question. Was Jesus just like waiting somewhere in like the green room deep in in deep heaven, just waiting for the incarnation? Where was Jesus for all that time, from the fall all the way until he came as a baby? Well, in the age of angels, he appeared as an angel. In Joshua, he appears and he says he's the commander of the armies of the Lord. At the end of Daniel, it's very, it, this is very odd. It says, Michael, your prince, they're talking about the archangel, 
And, and then they go on to talk about how he's going to be resurrected and he's going to save all of the Israelites. So there is a strong theory, this is as skinny as the branches are going to get for me today, that the Archangel Michael is actually the angel of the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. In the age of angels, he comes as an angel. But then by the time you get to Matthew 4, Jesus is already in his ministry, and what does Satan say? He says, hey, I will give you all the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world if you fall down and you will worship me. And I've made this point before. Why doesn't Jesus just say, who are you to be offering me those kingdoms. See, at, at, where were the Christians? Where were the believing nations? There weren't any. They're all worshiping pagan gods. They're all worshiping demons. They thought they had ejected God from this world. They thought they had finally created a hell where they could live without God. Right? And man's a spent force. Nobody is going to come from man to uh, topple us. We've made them look like a joke for 6,000 years. And the last thing they could have ever imagined, because their idol of the, of the fallen angels is glory, is that the most glorious one of all would be himself become a mudblood. Man's a spent force. God is in heaven, and he can laugh all he wants while he's up there because he can't touch earth. It's ours. And the last thing they were expecting is the most glorious one of all to go lower, lower than the angels, low all the way down to a manger and become himself a man. This is why all through Mark, when they see him, they are out of their minds. They're like, Yahweh Elohim has come from deep heaven. He's come. And they're, what are you doing here? What is this that is going on? And they can't even muster some kind of defense because they're so befuddled by what he's doing. Who is this God? They hate him even more now. They're gnashing their teeth. The one who had all the glory and he didn't have to share it with anyone is a mudblood. He just belched. <laughs> This is why he came lower than the angels. This is why it says, and Peter says, that we have the scriptures and there's mysteries there that angels long to look into. Because even the angels themselves, the good ones, were probably a little confused about what was going on. Because think about this for a second. You have the age of angels. Can angel, right? There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, and angels can't bleed. They can't find a good man to help them out. How is God going to fix all of this? But this world was not meant, it says in Hebrews, to be put into the hands of angels. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. There's deeper magic, right? This is why I love Narnia. Jade, Jade or whatever, the princess, the, the white witch, thinks she's won because she's going to slay the lion, and he says there's deeper magic. There's a deeper mystery. The Son of God comes himself as a mudblood to die for the mudbloods. He comes lower than the angels. And, and, and this, is, this is where it gets really interesting, ladies and gentlemen, because there is no greater love than a man lays down his life for his friends. And so the angels are, who are standing before God himself, looking at how glorious he is, singing at how glorious it is, are on the outside still looking in. 
Because Jesus comes and dies for his friends. There is a greater glory than being the high king of heaven. And that is love. And there is no greater love than a man laying his life down for his friends. And so we can look into the heart of God in a way the angels can never do. And so the Son of God comes as a mudblood, lower than the angels, to, and, and by lifting man up, he puts angels back where they belong. As the servants, right? It says we will stand in judgment of them. He doesn't just save a sinner. He doesn't just save the people of God. He puts the cosmos back together in the way that it is supposed to be. He brings order and, and goodness out of it. He, and, and, and why? He bound the strong man. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, it says in Ephesians. He bound the strong man. Right? Now, okay, now think about this for a moment. A strong man, a prisoner in prison, can still shank somebody, but it's limited in who he can shank. He can't just shank anybody. So a man in prison is far less of a, a threat than a man who, as it says in Job's, is going to and fro upon the earth. But his, his scheme hasn't changed. He's come and he's developed Islam and Mormonism since the resurrection. And so he's still out there and he's still dangerous. But we have nothing to fear. And we're not here to worship angels. We're not here to become angels. The Son of God became a man to make us the living sons of God in heaven with him, partaking in his essence, standing in judgment of angels, to look into the heart of God in a way angels never can, to be part of his family forever. And so, okay, all right, spiritual warfare is a thing. You get, you, you got some idea that comes from nowhere, and you're like, where did that demonic thought come from? You, you, the Mormon comes over, and, and sometimes, man, like, that guy's pretty moral. He's got it all together. You ever wonder? Sometimes Mormons give me a hard time because they are some super nice people. I mean, my Mormon neighbor will let me borrow anything, anything. It's like, oh, you're mowing your lawn? Can you mow my lawn? Oh, look at that, right? And you're like, these guys are so good. Look at how servant-hearted they are. But what's behind all of that? C.S. Lewis said, story wins. And this is why all the mythology, all the stories that men tell are full of these ideas. And you have to remember where they come from. What's behind them? What's behind communism? What's behind democracy? <laughs> the thing that we're supposed to export and save the whole world with. There is one living God and, and, and his son is Jesus Christ. And he came, he came out of the deep heavens to walk amongst us and to elevate us back to our position, not in Eden, but in the very throne room in the, in the deepest heavens, to sit at his right hand, to, to sit there and, and relish how glorious and beautiful he is, and to judge angels and to judge this world and to know the heart of God. This is the story that you, in, in your little insignificant life, has been drawn into this story. Once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king and queen in Narnia. Once the child of the living God, once right sitting at the throne room in the inner heavens, you're always there. That's where you always are. You right? You're sitting around folding laundry. You're sitting in traffic. You're looking at your coffee order and it's not correct. You're trying to decide whether your kid should watch that movie or this movie. You hear some nonsense on Fox News. You have the word of God and you can understand it better than the angels who see his face. 
by his spirit, because he came and delivered you from the principalities and powers of the air, from the evil one. He bound him and defeated him so that you might walk free, that you would not fear death, that you would not fear them and all their regal and all their glory, because you know a deeper and older glory, and that is the love of God. So this Christmas, when we're talking about this little sweet baby <laughs> in his little manger, oh, he's so cute, I'm with you, like the, the ewe lambs and everything, it's so pretty. Okay, I, think of Herod's soldiers coming. Think of the stars in, in the heavens realigning. Think of these angels who have been dying, dying for a man who could come alongside them and finally defeat Satan. Here he is. And it's not just hope for you and your, and your marriage and hope for you and your children and hope for you and this church. It's hope for the entire world, all of human history, all of the cosmos. And that is the story in which you are living out. Amen. Father God, we thank you for these deep things. We thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding and enlightenment. We pray, Lord God, true enlightenment, I may add. I thank you, Father, for your word. I pray that we would meditate on these things, that we would not just go through the motions of the season, that we would not just sing the songs and eat the chocolate without thinking of the fact that you became a man, that you gave up greater glory than we can possibly imagine to have us as your treasured possession. You bound the strong man to plunder his house, and we are that plunder. And I pray, God, that as we eat and as we drink, as we go in and come out, as we sit and rise, that we would remember who we are in Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ and to his glory in all things. Amen.